Let us turn to Colossians chapter 4, where I will read the first six verses. Colossians 4, uh, one of the smaller of the Pauline epistles, uh, verses 1 through 4. Um, uh, Masters, uh, give your bondservants what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Meanwhile, praying also for us, that God would open to us a door for the word to speak, the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in chains, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward those who are uh, outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. May the Lord bless this reading to our good understanding. <clears throat> and uh, let us pray for the efficacy and the power of this word. We, we pray, O Lord, that having read thy word, that we would be able to faithfully expound it and hold it up and we pray that thy spirit might attend unto it that we that our lives might be gripped by thy word unto us O lord thou has revealed it in scripture now send thy spirit to arrest it in our souls in jesus name we pray amen well the title of the sermon is uh, subtle graces for chaos, subtle graces for chaos. Now, the I think the 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 idea of the graces is fairly easy to understand here. Uh, Paul is talking about prayer and a godly speech and that kind of thing, <clears throat> and so that's easy to understand. But uh, what what's this chaos stuff what, of the title? Um, subtle graces fit for chaos, and down below in the sermon outline at the bottom of the page there. You see, I've enlarged the title by one word, uh, so subtle graces fit for social chaos. Well, what, what was the chaos about which we speak here? Or what is the chaos of this text? The text doesn't say anything about uh, chaos, at least uh, in so many words. But we know that um, the Apostle Paul wrote this from his jail cell. Uh, he was imprisoned in Rome when he wrote these words. And so we cannot we cannot deal with these words without considering the context from which they came. And uh, I think unhappily, so often when preachers come to this text, they only they only look at the words and so they, they'll give you a sermon on prayer something like that, because prayer is mentioned, they'll give you a sermon on prayer, but because they overlook or neglect the circumstances of this word, of this letter, I would say they they totally blow it. They misrepresent the apostle's thought. Because the apostle Paul here, as he speaks of these items like prayer and good fellowship, He's speaking of that from within the context of the Roman Empire, such as it was. We feel, we feel um, oppressed today, very often, 
with the state of things in America. Things were much more graphic in this day. Uh, today, our government subtly worships false gods, especially the, the, the god of self, the god of the human spirit. Our, our governors get up and they say, we will do this and we will do that. Kind of like the braggy king of Babylon who stood up in his day and said, look at all that my hands have done as he looked out at his kingdom. It's very easy for us as human beings to, to aggrandize ourselves, to inflate ourselves up, to puff ourselves up and think we have done some great thing, even while we disregard totally the strength of the Lord that enables us to stand, enables us to breathe, enables us to think. And so as the Apostle Paul closes this letter, it's really wonderful that he calls the people to these quiet um, ways of witness, these quiet ways of exhortation. He calls them to this, but in the context of their, uh, their incarceration and his literal incarceration as a, a prisoner for Christ. And so when we, when we approach the text from that perspective, these words become even more um, Exciting and inspiring. Now you notice right away in verse 1, he says, Masters, give your bondservants what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Now you see, if we approach this from the perspective of the first, some first century exhortation on slaves, which existed then, that's one thing. But if we, if we listen to Paul's words and we realize that even as Paul speaks about bond servants, which is another word for bond slave, even as Paul speaks about uh, 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 masters give your bond servants what is fair and just, so he focuses on slaves, bond slaves, and then he says, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So he's speaking about this context of masters in heaven and bond slaves, and uh, when we realize that he is a bond slave himself, in jail, did he use these words just accidentally? I think not. I think he wants the people there in uh, Colossae to be thinking about where they are and how the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, in a certain sense, is a bond slave in this world. And that their great leader, Paul, was even now in prison. He was writing them from prison. And so if we read it from that perspective, we see that uh, that they are they are slaves. He's writing to them. He's reminding them that they are slaves. Their leader is a slave, Paul, but he's speaking to them about the slaves that they own. And again, if you are of the modern mindset that that thinks that all slavery is demonic on its face, well, then you can accuse God of a demonic theology here. Because uh, the Lord, in such places that he, he writes about, uh, in one place, we'll, well, we'll see in the next passage, the, the man Onesimus is mentioned. And Onesimus was understood to be a slave in one of the Christian churches. But uh, Onesimus was a slave in a Christian context. Why do I say that? Well, because uh, Christ teaches us 
the, the only reason that we should, should the only basis that we can really condemn slavery is on, on the basis that Christ wants us to be free. Now, if you don't believe in Christ, you don't really believe that there is an, uh, a necessary ought or rightness in freedom, do we? Now, our, our age, we, they, our age does not believe in Jesus. They do not believe in Christ. They do not believe in the freedom of Christ. And yet they, they want to cling to the idea that slavery is wrong. Well, I, I want to ask them, on what basis is slavery wrong? On what basis is it? Today, uh, uh, one party, one political party, thinks that they have uh, autonomous power over everyone else. It doesn't matter what the people want in many cases. The people in Washington will rule. Well, on what basis do they do that other than the survival of the fittest? We're in power. You are our servants. It doesn't matter what you want. I don't know how many um, national, I mean, uh, uh, statewide uh, votes they held in California over the last 30 or 40 years to overturn things that their politicians have given them over and over and over again to end this or to end that. And then and then the politicians would find some way to overturn it. They knew what the people wanted, but they just disregarded it. And that's going on today, both here in America and around the world. But the Apostle Paul, as he writes here, he, he knows that there is an, an order to the universe which is deeper than that which is on the surface. And so he reminds the people... <clears throat> He says, Masters, give your bondservants what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So Paul is pointing to an authority system and an ethical system that rises above the decrees of men, the, the, the thoughts and the common commitments of men. And Paul is reminding them that they have a master in heaven. Now this is the key to better society. You see, when our, when our policemen act as policemen, we want them to feel like though they are a law unto themselves to a certain degree on the street, we want them to be reminded that there is a power above them in heaven. And so, yes, we commit them a certain amount of power. We, we delegate a certain amount of power to our police, just like we do to our politicians. But we want them to know, and they will rule best if they remember that there is a God in heaven above them, that they are not uh, autonomous or absolutely powerful in and of themselves. Whatever power they wield, they have to wield it on the basis of the power that they have received from God. So that they know that there is a superior over them. In our societies, if we, if we admit that there is a power over us, then we are much more prone to be merciful to each other. And we won't just rule as if the minute an idea comes into our minds that that idea must be obeyed because it arose in our minds. No, we'll say, I have an idea. How does that, how does that correspond with God's ideas? And you see, if we have that kind of a mentality about us, we will be much more merciful to each other and we will be much more enlightened. We wouldn't be killing babies today by the millions per year if we had asked God's opinion on these things. So Paul, even as he addresses the people in Corinth who, who would own slaves, 
he calls them to a higher law above the law of men. Masters, give your bondservants what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. And by this, he's calling attention to the fact that even though these people are slaves, and literally the Christians were uh, had, degree, had degrees of slavery all about them in the, in the first century. But despite that fact, they were slaves of power. And that's the first point on my outline there. They were slaves of power because they served the living God. And the living God was living. He was not a dead God. He was not a figment of people's imaginations. He was the real God. He was the only real God. And as we sang this morning in the, 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 the last psalm that we sang, um, uh, the Lord will cut off all false lips, tongues that speak proudly thus. In other words, they speak in this way. We'll with our tongue prevail. Our lips are ours. Who's Lord over us? Beginning about uh, the late 1500s, we had what was called the Renaissance. And the, one of the philosophical axioms of the Renaissance was man is the measure of all things. Now, what we had at that time was we had the Reformation take place in the 1500s. Martin Luther, remember, 1517, he posted his thesis on the door. Uh, almost almost uh, at the same time as that, so we had a Christian movement, a Christian revival started in the earth, with the world, and um, was consummated in the, the Reformation uh, in the 1600s. We had the Puritans and the Westminster Confession of Faith that we so we had all this wonderful stuff going on in terms of Christianity, but in the world there was this Renaissance going on that was a glorification of man and his mind and whatever he would rule and uh, dictate. But the psalmist says here, the Lord will cut off all false lips, tongues that speak proudly thus. Will with our tongues prevail? Our lips are ours. Who's Lord or us? The, the Lord is going to cut off all of that kind of thinking. And then he says, Because the poor were sorely pressed, because the needy sighs to give the safety they desire, the Lord says, I'll arise. And the Lord has arisen. The Lord arose over Egypt. When the Israelites were slaves in Egypt, the Lord arose like a second Moses in the Lord Jesus Christ in the first century when people were being buffeted this way and that way by the power of the Roman legions. Rome had no, Rome had no delusions about their views being really absolutely right. They didn't really believe in absolute right and wrong anymore. But what, they, what did they believe in? They believed in the power of the Roman legion. To, to act like their rule was the word of God. And so they ruled. But God, in that context, God planted a seed in Palestine with the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. And despite all of the might of Rome, all of those Roman legions, all their swords, all their chariots, all their might, the, the way that they would march together and just decimate people upon which they came, despite all of that, what prevailed? The church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Rome is long gone. The nation of Italy today is, 
is just a, a memory of what it was in the in the days of Rome. But the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ, in some senses, we muddle along, we err, err here, we err there, we trip over ourselves in Africa or in Europe, and we doing all the things that we do by mistake. And yet, the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ is prospering and moving forward like the leaven in a loaf. And so Paul was speaking of that here. Uh, slaves with power. Now, in that in that sense, uh, he says, uh, in verse 2, he says, continue earnestly in prayer. So you see, he's asking the people to pray. He's calling the people to prayer, but he's calling them to prayer not as people who have no power, but he's calling them to prayer in terms of having power. having the, And he's in prison. He's, he, he doesn't have the freedom to, to leave the jail, to go here and there. But he's, his word has escaped the jail by this letter, and he's preaching to the people in this far-off place of Turkey, which was a, a, uh, it wasn't a, the country Turkey then, but it was a distant place compared with Rome. And yet Paul's letter has reached this province, as it were, far away, and he's calling them to pray, to prayer. So obviously... Uh, Paul be believes in prayer and the power of prayer. He says, continuing, continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant with thanksgiving. One of the last really powerful prayers that have been that I've been aware of in my life is the, the prayers of my father, who's now with the Lord. But my mother had um, um, that disease of the brain. <laughs> uh, Alzheimer's, named after named after a doctor, Alzheimer, and uh, uh, she had Alzheimer's, and she was going downhill. She was forgetting things. Uh, she was forgetting who my father was. Uh, she was for, she was remembering things that she shouldn't have. She she was remembering that her father was living in the basement of their house. And of course, he had been he had gone to be with the Lord some years before, but she was certain he was there. Well, my father saw that, and he prayed. He prayed that God would take my mother as quickly as possible so that she endured the least discomfort that she had to endure. And... Uh, I know as, uh, as he was sick and dying at the end of his life, he encouraged me, my brothers and sisters, to remember the efficacy of prayer. And how he had prayed for his dear wife to be taken from him, and how God kindly took her. I'm sure that all of you have prayers like that, that where you, you know that God has answered your prayers. And so Paul call, called the, uh, the, the Colossian church to pray uh, for the things that they saw. And he said to be, to be vigilant in thanksgiving, even as they prayed, to be vigilant or energetic in their thanksgiving. So they're praying to God for things that at the same time they're thanking God. They're cognizant of all that God has done for them. And there's a, it's wonderful to pray with thanksgiving because it, it reminds you how powerful God is and how he's doing what he wants to do. He's doing it according to his own will. You're praying to him to do things, but on the basis of what he's already done. 
And so it enthuses us with prayer. When we pray earnestly in prayer and we're vigilant in it with thanksgiving, he says, meanwhile, also praying for us, that is, the, the, Paul and other Christians who were in, in prison in the Roman Empire, that God would open to us a door for the word. So he prays for an open door in prison, but not physically for himself. He would take that if God opens his own door, but especially for a door for the word of God. The word of God is able to escape prisons like this. It's able to accomplish whatever it is, whatever it would do. It's called the sword of the spirit. The word of God is able to take us and convince us of its truth. Many have been the jailer who have been abusive and cruel to Christians in their, in their charge. Uh, to whom the Christians have prayed and, uh, and sought uh, God's uh, will for them. And the, the jailers have seen this. And in the end, the jailers, like it was done in the Philippian jailer, by the Philippian jailer in the Philippian jail, by the apostle where the apostle Paul was incarcerated another time, where these jailers would all of a sudden ask the, their prisoners, for spiritual help. Because the Holy Spirit had changed their hearts. Because the sword of the Spirit had taken the word of God and changed their perspective about these things. And so in uh, in the third verse here, uh, we see that <clears throat> um, Paul, even as he's an impotent prisoner, he's praying for an overturning of the world. He's praying, he says, uh, for the dog, God would open for us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. So Paul was not even that concerned about himself because he could see that there was a freedom and a power to the word and to the spirit. And so he's praying for that for these people and he's, he's encouraging them to pray for that, that kind of thing. And so in this fourth verse, uh, the fourth point I've got here is Paul's ironic grace. He's impotent, he's without power, he's incarcerated, and yet he's praying for power because he knows that God is still alive and that God is not dead and that God can change the circumstances of his life. All of us have circumstances of our lives which are grievous. It may be sickness, it may be oppression. It may be a neighbor that's driving us batty by his injustice and by his cruelty. Pray about these things, brothers and sisters, because God can change them, and God can change us, and God can change our circumstances. And then he says in verse, verse 5, uh, he says, Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, that is outside of the faith, redeeming the time. Paul calls us to have a kind of wisdom, a spiritual wisdom in the midst of these things to know uh, what we ought to know. And I've entitled this minority status wisdom because the Christians of this day were a minority and they, they weren't powerful. We're not powerful today in today's church. But as we, as we do things in faith, God blesses us. You know, through the uh, Ohio Gun Owners Association, which this church has sponsored in the past, through we've got we've got the the, the previous gun association 
buck, a buck, uh, Buckeye Firearms said that these things could, they, they said that we could never overturn, the, uh, we could never get stand your ground instituted because uh, where, the, where we, we don't, before we had, uh, if, if you were attacked by somebody, you, it was, it was thought that you, the burden was on you to retreat and not to defend yourself and to, and if somebody got killed, in those circumstances, you had to you had to prove your innocence. In that case, they they said we couldn't do that. We passed that earlier, either earlier this year or at the end of last year. Now we've almost got constitutional carry has been passed in the House and now the Senate of Ohio, and we're, they're wrangling about how to get that in a, in a unified form so that it can go to the governor. And that's been done by uh, people in this church. The, 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 uh, Chris Dorr and his family who were sat here amongst you. Because we were, we didn't have very much power, but we spoke the truth in love, sometimes in rough love, <laughs> to the legislators of Ohio. And God blessed us through that. And so Paul is, Paul is not asking them to overturn the, the status quo by an earthquake or something like that, but he is calling them to speak, to pray, and to um, and he's he's giving he's telling them that the mystery of Christ is ultimately the most important because if we don't do things for the sake of Jesus and His kingdom, then we have no reason to do anything. And uh, he says in verse four that to, that he makes manifest these things as I ought to speak. And then he says in verse five, walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, namely the Romans who were his rulers. Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time. This phrase, redeeming the time, was very important in our Puritan background because the Puritans, the Puritans believe that you shouldn't waste your time at anything. Uh, if, you're, if you're taking a break, if you're resting, if you're taking a vacation, then do that vacation with a purpose of recovering your strength, resting your mind and coming back for more. But they said we, they, they, needed to, they needed to redeem all the time, and it comes from this text. They needed to redeem all of their time because they, they could have they could have no moment in their lives that was outside the perspective of the kingdom of God. Because of that, they, they got a tremendous amount done because they were dedicated to do these things, and so um, this. And all of this was said by Paul while it took people that were in minority status. Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside. Redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt. The salt of the gospel, we think. That you may know how you want to answer each one. When we're in the state of servitude or powerlessness, we realize that we have a helper who is outside of us, who is above us, who is able to help us and do more than we can ask or think. But we don't know exactly how he's going to do that. So we, Paul says to them, you know, when you're speaking, when, when a Roman centurion comes and tells you to do this or that, answer him according to your best wisdom and be looking to God to see what God will, what advantage God will give you with your sermon. Sometimes we repudiate the ungodly strength that we have around us. Sometimes we rebuke it. I've stood before mayors and city councils, both here in Ohio and uh, and uh, in Virginia when I was there. I've stood before them and I've called them to 
called them to task and said, you guys are ruling as if there no God existed at all. And God, I've said to them, God will hold you accountable for that. I've preached that kind of thing to them. They usually give you one or two minutes or something like that, but you can still say what you say. And you challenge them. And uh, amazingly enough, I've seen God work in these circumstances. And so Paul exhorted the people of that day that they might uh, that they might um, uh, work uh, the same way in their day. <laughs> and um, uh, accomplish great things. You know, not, not too long ago, uh, it was a Sunday morning, and uh, uh, it was about 10 minutes to go before I was supposed to leave for church. And I looked at my watch, and my watch was an hour off. And I thought, my word, this, this, this watch here. I thought, I didn't reset this watch. Now, I have, a, I have an electronic watch, an iWatch, that, uh, or an Apple watch that sets its, resets itself, you know, because it's all hooked up to the Internet and satellites and all kinds of things like that. But this watch, you have to physically reset it. And I thought to myself, I, don't, I, I forgot to reset that watch with the daylight saving time that just happened a couple weeks ago. And I thought, here I was, you know, five minutes before church, and I didn't even know what time it was. I thought, how, how foolish or how awkward that was. And then I thought to myself, what a metaphor for the way the world operates. The world doesn't know what time it is either. It's Jesus time, you know. It's, the, it's time for the kingdom of God. And uh, it's like everybody's, they're living their lives, but they, they're not paying attention to what God is saying. Paul here Calls the uh, Paul's the, tells the Colossians to just realize who's in charge. God's in charge to pray to Him, to pray earnestly to Him, to seek His face, to to consider how we answer the people who are have power over us. We can be in desperate situations today. We're very we're very ungodly people have power over us. And yet we're not without power ourselves. We can pray. We have a friend in the highest places imaginable. And he will, he will take care of us. Every time um, I see uh, a family go through troubles, like, uh, like I think in our own family here, we had problems with cancer. And uh, we were afraid that we might lose my daughter-in-law. Some of you were afraid because we had cancer in the church here, uh, other people too. And uh, so one of the prayers that I prayed was, because I knew God, I knew how God uses these things in our lives. And I prayed, God, whatever happens here, I pray for my grandchildren that you would use this sickness and the fears of death, that you would use these things to affect their hearts and their souls. I know my oldest boy, I've told, I think I've told the story before, but my oldest boy, Richard, uh, he'd only been married for about a year and a half when he found out that his wife had multiple sclerosis, muscular, no, multiple sclerosis, MS. We were driving along the car, we got a call on our cell phone. Rich was kind of caught up in emotional turmoil. And he said that his young wife 
uh, had MS. Uh, Susan and I had to pull off the road because we were crying to find that out. We thought, what a what a burden to put on a young man, a young woman, just getting married. But I can testify today that God has done more good with that MS in the life of my son and my daughter-in-law than he ever would have with just easygoing, uh, great stuff. Because God can do the very opposite with his trials and his temptations. He can do the very opposite that it might seem at the time. The most important thing for us in this world is that we get to heaven someday. The most important thing to us is that we, when we, in all eternity, that we live on the largesse and the pomp and the circumstance of our spirituality today. Our, the Bible says that our deprivation today will not begin to compare with the wonders of heaven. So into which bank account are you making deposits? Do you want to have it pe- perfectly peaceful here in this world? Do you, want to have, do, you want to have, do you want to have your money here for these few scant years that we will be alive? Or do you want your money to be invested in your heavenly inheritance that will go on forever? Paul understood that then is longer than now. He understood that uh, we should pour ourselves into the Lord now and reap our investment later on in heaven with our heavenly inheritance. And so he called these people in this little town of Colossae in the provinces of what is now Middle Turkey. He called them to a godly perspective to pray about their lives with hope, to speak about it, to to witness about it, and to rejoice. Pray with thanksgiving. Let's close in prayer. Our Father and our God, we pray that we might do as well as these Colossians. We pray that we might heed the apostles' words. We pray that we, like him, might not feel incarcerated by the circumstances of our lives, even even if those circumstances involve prison and the incapacity to leave and to be free like we would want to, we pray, O oh Lord, that you might be our freedom, that you might be our hope, that you might be our power. And in the end, O oh Lord, we do we pray for this power. We pray that thy kingdom would come, that thy will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray that the glory of Jesus Christ might be seen and that we might be agencies of it through our lives and through our humble witness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.